0: Well, good morning. good morning. Happy September. We're super excited for you guys to come and join us as you find your seats. We, we have a lot to do this morning, a lot to be able to engage with. Uh, we're going to have a time of communion, time of worship, studying God's word, and just really seeing all that God's got for us. We've turned the corner into fall, and yes, summer's over. And they closed the river. Oh. Uh, but it's still, hunting season, so that's good. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we thank you. You're amazing. The fact that you from eternity would consider us, be mindful of us, that you would love us, and that you would protect us. God, as we study in Acts chapter 12 today, may we learn. The lesson that our life is really in your hands. As we celebrate communion, may we remember the price that you paid, Lord Jesus, to have that relationship with us, to reconnect us with our God and our Creator. And may every aspect of this morning give praise and worship to you, because God, you are worthy to be praised. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. Let's stand together and worship our Savior this morning. He's the one who saves. He is our Lord. He is our shepherd. Sing out your praise to Him
2: this morning. Praise. i away, show away your presence, all our fears are washed away. Because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Washed away. have some great things. You've been faithful through every storm, you'll be faithful for You do great things, God. You do great things. Oh, hero of oh, heaven. heaven, You conquered the grave. Oh, you free every captive and break every chain. Oh God, if You have some great things, we dance in Your freedom, awake and alive. Oh Jesus, our Savior, Your name lives. great things. You've done great things.
1: God has done some great things in our lives this week And he's going to be doing great things in our lives this coming week And as we continue to worship, we want to take a moment and worship God By giving our tithes and our offerings this morning So ushers, if you would come and receive the offering, I'll pray over it And then we'll continue to worship also through song God, we rejoice in your goodness to us And we thank you that you are a God who is with us every moment, that you have saved us, that you have taken care of us, and that you do great things in our lives. And so, Lord, we are glad that we are here in your presence, and we give to you now the resources. We give back a portion of it to you as an act of worship to honor you, to glorify you, and be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Oh, we forget who wonders of how you rise to bear the rest, the accidents of my heart. You found me. A sign that you are with me. Fire by night is the guide.
1: come into your throne room to see your goodness, to look into your eyes and say, Father God, we love you. Say, Jesus, thank you for giving your life in our place. You are a good God and you are good all the time. And what a joy it is to come into your presence and to tell you how much we love you. How much we appreciate all that you've done for us. Now as we turn our attention to your words, Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
0: If you would, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. As we continue our study, at the book of Acts and Luke is giving a reason why we should believe to Theophilus, the lover of God. Be able to see all that He's got for us. As you're turning there, have you ever had a time in your life when you asked this question, God, where are you? Usually that question is asked in times when it feels like the wheels are coming off. When you're in a situation or set of circumstances that feel out of control, whether it's a health condition or a work condition or these other places, have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? That is part of the human experience. We will all experience it maybe multiple times in our life. Because there's a tension in the life of the believer between that which we know in our head and that which we feel in our heart. And this tension exists because we are stuck in the temporal, but we believe in the eternal. It really isn't about, where is God? It's more about, where are you? Because the fact of the matter is, God is always present. God is a person that never abandons His people. In fact, He, he promises that He will never abandon us, in even though we feel like it. You say, well carrying those times when I feel like God has abandoned me, is it a lack of faith to say, God, where are you? No. Because didn't Jesus say the same thing? Consider this at the cross. When He was hanging on the cross and He said, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. So here we see the tension that exists in the human condition. Jesus being fully God and fully man is experiencing in great distress the human feeling that God is not present, that God is not there. Now on our side, we understand that God did not abandon his son, but that there was a separation in the sense that sin had created that separation and Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that we would become the righteousness of God, Paul would tell us. Where God would have to judge his son, and we live in that condition of sin, sorrow, and suffering. And sin, sorrow, and suffering, any one of those, sin, sorrow, or suffering, any one of those conditions can give the impression that God is not present. You could be in sin, which separates you from God. Or you can be in such a a condition of deep sorrow that you feel that God is not present. Or you can be in such a condition of physical suffering that you can feel that God is not present. But that is not the case. Jesus declared in John chapter 10 verses 28-29, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them where? Out of my hand, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's what hand. This is called eternal security. And when you are in the hand of God, regardless of what's going on, nothing will remove you. And so (laughs) that's a good amen. And with that, we can see that God is at work. And you say, well, Carrie, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 12? Acts chapter 12 is a passage that Luke accounts for that creates this tension. When we see the word hand, it, it describes power or authority. And at this time, the church is being persecuted. There was a new king in Israel. His name was Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. This Herod, all the Herods, they were not very nice people and they would persecute the church. One of the things that we're going to see that's in Acts chapter 12 is this, that the Jews are continuing to reject Jesus as Messiah through Herod and through some of the other people. And Luke is documenting how the Holy Spirit is working within establishing the church within this. And This idea of abandonment. Could you imagine being the Jews, the Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem being persecuted by Herod and the other Jews and and they've done everything. They've believed in Jesus. They've received the Holy Spirit. And still life is becoming very, very hard. And as a Jewish Christian asking the question, God, where are you? I thought it was supposed to get better than this. And it's a struggle. God, do you even see? God, do you even care? Listen to the words of Peter that he would write to a general letter to the church much later after he learned his lesson that we're going to see here in Acts 12. In 1 Peter 3.12 it says, For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer." But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Does God see? The answer is what? Yes. Does God care? Yes. Does God know what the evil, wicked people are doing? The answer is absolutely yes. And we're going to see all of that in this passage this morning as we take a look at the deliverance of Peter and and from his captivity. So, as is our custom, let's stand as we read through our passage. We give reverence to, to God's Word because it's really God's Word and the Holy Spirit that changes us. So I'm just the conduit. Acts twelve one says this, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James... The brother of John put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping Between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and continued to follow And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real or he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and went another place. Now, when the day had come, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. And now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chambermen, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took seat in the rostarium and began delivering an address to the people. And the people kept crying out the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Worm food. One of the things that we see is this theme of hand that is a thread throughout this passage. The first thing that we see is the hand of the enemy is against God's people. If you haven't figured it out, when you become a Christian, you become the enemy of the world and of Satan. And the hand of the enemy is always going to be against you. If someone told you, yeah, I'd become a Christian, accept Jesus, then your life is going to be perfect. Don't believe him. It becomes complete. But the life on this world is not going to be perfect. It's going to be hard. Because you've moved out of the enemy's camp into being an enemy against Satan, and he doesn't like that. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the hand of Herod being against God's people. And as I said, this Herod says about that time, about what time? About the same time as the verse in chapter 11, when the church in Antioch was growing, the Gentile church was growing, um, and they had gotten together this offering that they were going to send back with Barnabas and Saul down into Jerusalem to help them. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem was under great persecution at this time. This Herod Agrippa, the first, as I said, was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the the Herod, and Herod is not his name, it's his title. Herod was in charge of the area at the time of Jesus, and you remember what he did? Killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Why? Because the wise men came and said, we We're here to see a new king, and he freaked out and said, Okay, well, you know, let's time it out. They, everybody that's two years old in age and under in Bethlehem needs to die. Why? Because I'm scared that they're going to usurp my authority and take my throne. This Herod the Great was a great builder, and he did a lot of, of great buildings the temple and all these different things. Herod's were half Jew, half Idumean. They were appointed in, in this dynasty to be able to control Judah and, and Israel as a whole on behalf of the Roman Empire. So the Jews really didn't like them because they were traitors. They were working for the Roman Empire that was keeping them under control. So this Herod was, and all of the Herods were trying to gain favor in this. Well, this Herod the Great was so evil that when his son that came up, Estibulus, I can't even say the guy's name. His son was coming of age. He killed his son. His grandson, Agrippa, was four years of age. And so now he takes his fatherless grandson, Agrippa, sends him to Rome with his mother to be able to learn and to go to school. This is how this Herod family would work. Well, Herod Agrippa would come back later, and he would make connections with people. And first, he was given uh, uh, some control over the Decapolis, which is in the north and the Galilee, and then he was given control over over uh, Judea, Samaria, Perea. So he ended up really being the king over all of Israel at this time, from 42 to 44 BC or AD. He was he was. The king of this land. You say, well, Kerry, why is that important? Because he was the final authority. He had control of what was going on. This Herod, Agrippa, wanted to get the the Jews to like him. So what would he do? Well, whatever the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted him to do. And if it meant killing a few people, eh, no problem. So what he did was he started listening to the Jewish Sanhedrin as the Christian church was growing in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders didn't like the Christians. And so now we have these two different groups. And the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin were going and complaining to Herod, saying, look, at these guys are going to cause a ruckus. They're known rioters. They're, they're, they, they just need to be taken out. And so he got the ear of the Jewish Sanhedrin, so they started persecuting the church and mistreating them. Abusing them to the point that he would put James, the brother of John, remember the brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, the fishermen, put James, the brother of John, to death by the sword. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but it's likely that he was beheaded. How do we know that? Because it was the Roman style of killing was the beheading. John the Baptist was beheaded, if you remember that account. And it was the worst thing that you could do to a Jew was to disgrace the body within them. So, whether he was stabbed to death, run through, or had his head cut off, doesn't really matter. Luke doesn't give us a lot of details other than the fact that this Herod, this wicked Herod, by the hand of Herod, was putting to death James. And here is where it gets political the Jews liked it, and they called for more. And what did Herod do? He started going after the leadership of the church. James would be the first apostle that would be killed. Stephen was the first martyr. James would be the first apostle. He said, if it worked good for James, and they really liked James being put to death, then who am I going to go after? Peter. Why Peter? Because Peter was the head of the church at that time. He was seen as the the most focal point of the church. And if you cut off the head of the church, then perhaps they will scatter. We know that there was a, a holiday that was coming up within this. And they were getting ready for this holiday. Now, here's the first tension. Why didn't God keep James safe? Why didn't He deliver him from the sword? Why did he allow James to die? Could God have saved James? Could have, but he didn't. In fact, we know that James and John would be told by Jesus, and you can look it up later, but in Mark ten thirty nine, Jesus, when they asked for the seed on the right and the left, you remember the account? And Jesus says, it's not mine to give. And then he says, but you're going to drink of the same cup I drink of. Which is persecution. We know James will be put to death early. And John, his brother, will drink the cup of persecution as he later gets tormented and and boiled and then put on an island of Patmos. Why? Because John's job was not done yet. He had to be around to see the vision of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus, and write it. And so God's timing is always perfect within that. So Herod raises his hand against the church once again and he grabs a hold of Peter. In verses 3 through 5, he wants to take out the leadership of the church. And and notice it says, When he saw it pleased, and this feast was coming around. Well, what about this feast? The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a celebration that was together. If you remember, Jesus had come to Israel on the Passover as a Passover lamb. It happened on the 14th of Nisan, which is March, April. And it would take place for eight days, and so it was a Passover plus seven days that would be there. And during this high holiday... All the Jews that would make a pilgrimage would come to Jerusalem. Now think about this strategically. I want to gain favor with everybody. And killing Christians works for me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to wait for the highest holiday when the most people are there. And I'm going to grab a hold of Peter at the beginning of the holiday. And let the news travel around for this whole week. And at the end of the holiday I'm going to kill him. It's a political stunt. Herod doesn't have any skin in the game, other than the fact he's playing politics. And he wants to kill Peter. And so he grabs a hold of Peter and he puts him in a prison. This the cell that is there. And it's in the Antonio Fortress that is in the northwestern corner of the Temple Mount. So he puts him into there. But he, he puts him into the cell and he surrounds him with four squads. Two guards would be chained to him and then there would be a guard posted on either side of the door. You say, well, why such heavy imprisonment? Why would he do that? Why would he go to that extent? You know, want to know why? Well, this is Peter's third time of being put into prison. The first time in Acts 4, three, he got out just through talking. In Acts 5.18... He was led out by God, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So the Sanhedrin said, "Look at the last time he was in jail, he got away." And Herod says, "This is not going to happen." So they grab a hold of Peter and they put him in chains, with the intent of killing him. He's on death row, and he's got a guard on one side and a guard on the other side. Um, in, in you know, we can think about it. You know, is he chained close or are they long chains? The guards would have been awake. They're standing watches every six hours. They would change their watch within this. And so within this, we see the world persecuting the church. But note the footnote. Meanwhile, what's the church doing? Praying. Peter goes into prison. He's going to die. The church goes to prayer. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are spiritual the church knew that the best weapon that they could have instead of storming the Antonio Fortress was to pray. Why? Because our life is in God's hands. Instead of taking matters into our own hands and storming the Antonio Fortress and having a lot of bloodshed and trying to take Peter back by force, they go to prayer. You say, well, Kerry, that's pretty passive. Oh, no, no, no. Our life is in God's hands. And I would rather trust in the power of God than the power of man. Because when God does something, He really does something. Yet, could you imagine the tension that's in their mind? In their mind, Peter is already as good as dead. Why? Because James has already been killed by this guy. So they're praying, but are they really believing? Are they really trusting? It takes faith to trust in God in everything. It takes faith to trust in God and to, in everything, put my life in God's hands. And that is a wrestling match that we all struggle with. Well, we come to verses 6 through 19, and we see something unusual. What's unusual? The ability to be at rest... In the worst possible conditions. Because Peter was at rest in trusting God. Look at verses 6 through 19. It says, on the very night. So he's gone this whole period of time. Being chained to these guards. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward. Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers. Now, is that odd to you? It's weird to me. If you knew that you were going to die the next day, and it's already been proven that this guy's capable of doing that, would you be able? And you've got two Roman guards you're chained to. Would you be able to just curl up and go to sleep? You could if you were trusting in God. Peter was asleep between these two guards. He, he he's at rest. I don't know how you can rest. At the night before a major event. Unless you're really resting in the hands of God. That's the place to be. How do we get to a place where there is no anxiety? We rest in the hands of God. How do we get to a place of peace? Because we rest in the hands of God. We place ourselves in the hands of God. Say, God, you've got this. I'm resting in you. Within this. To be able to understand. And, and then I thought, I wonder if what Jesus had said to Peter might be ringing through his ears. In John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus had told Peter this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. I wonder if Peter, while he wrestled with this, wrestled with the fact that Jesus said, this is going to happen to you. It's okay. I'm telling you ahead of time. This is going to happen to you. I wonder if Peter was saying, is this it? Is this what Jesus was talking about? And wrestling with that. But the unknown, addressing the unknown, requires faith. And so Peter has confidence within this. And again, how did he get to that place? A verse that you should put to memory is this. John chapter 14, verse 27. Listen to the words. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Note, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful that means that you're in control do not that's an imperative do not let your heart be troubled do not let your heart be fearful take every thought captive don't let your mind run trust in God and taking those thoughts captive well as the as the account goes Peter's asleep Got a guard on one side, guard on the other. They're standing watch. I'm imagining a longer chain where they've got some room to move around. But they're standing watch and they're awake. And it says, and suddenly an angel appeared and a light shone into the cell. Which is odd to me that these soldiers wouldn't have seen it. Peter's asleep. It wasn't enough for Peter to wake up. So the angel says, get up. Proper biblical terms is struck him on the side. (laughs) Get up, wake him up, which means he was in a sound sleep that is there. All of this is happening while the guards are oblivious to what's going on. And so this angel strikes him in the side and has to tell him, like a junior hire, how to get up and get dressed. Have you ever tried to wake up a junior hire? I've heard of people trying to rally them, throw water on them, and all kinds of different things. There are those that sleep like that. Maybe, parents, you should pray for an angel to show up. But this angel says, and tell, note it tells them to do everything get up, put your shoes on, put your coat on, gird your loins, get your cloak. You've got to tell him everything. Why? Because he's half asleep. He doesn't, in fact, the text says he didn't even know if it was a vision or if it was reality. Now, why would Peter say that as he comes to the end? Because he's already had this vision of Cornelius. He's already had visions of God. So he doesn't, he's, he's not quite sure what's really going on. Have you ever been in a condition where God was doing something that you thought was too good to be true? Peter's experiencing that. He's thinking he's having this other vision. Oh, and by the way, the chains fall off. First thing that's amazing. The chains just fall off. Now again, I cannot imagine the guards standing there with all of this going on, and the chains falling off, and them not seeing it. Not hearing it. But this shows you how powerful God is. To blind the eyes and, the, and to deafen the ears of these guards. Well, the angel, verses 8 through 11, guides Peter out. He tells him what to do, gets him out, and he takes him past all of the guards, past the two that he was chained to, goes to the first gate, goes past the first guard, goes past the second gate, and then notice it says, and then opens up the iron gate. It says the iron gate opened up by itself. So the chains fall off, the iron gate goes up. What's going on? God is setting Peter free. The things that were holding him prisoner are, are being removed and he's being set free to be able to go out. And then it says Peter came to himself when he was standing outside the Antonio Fortress on one of the narrow roads. And if you've been to Israel with us, think about those tall buildings, the walls with the cobblestone. And he would have been on that narrow road to walk across the city over to the upper room. Imagine that. He gets on the outside and goes, now I know. And, no, the angel's not there anymore. The angel's departed. Why did the angel stay with him to keep him safe all the way to go visit where he needed to go? Because all of the danger was gone. And he was safe. He says, now I know that the Lord has rescued me from Herod. And, note, the expectations of the Jewish people wanted him dead. Is God powerful to save? Is the hand of God capable of guiding you and setting you free? Absolutely. Absolutely. Within that. And again, we come to this wrestling match. And and perhaps John, the brother of James, would later reflect on this and say, God, why did you save Peter and not save my brother? Because our life is in the hand of God. Because we trust in Him. We don't know why. It's called divine prerogative. Divine prerogative means that God has the divine choice and His decisions are always good and for a purpose. We may not understand it. We may never understand it. And by the way, does God have to answer to us? Does He have to explain Himself to us? No. He doesn't. But in our feeble temporal minds, we struggle with this. So we need to lean into the Word of God. And we need to understand that God is in charge. In Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9 says this, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are whose? The Lord's for to this end. Christ died and lived again that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Paul would write and say, God's in charge. And whether I live or die. God's in charge and God has my life and everything within that life. Well, Peter makes his way over to Mary's house in verses 12 to 19. And he goes to the door and he bangs on the door. And I'm imagining this is early in the morning. And the prayer team is inside praying. And the greeter, Rhoda, comes to the gate. Greeters are super important. And they need to be courteous. So if you're going to be an usher or a greeter here, be courteous. Rhoda gets to the gate, banging on the door. Peter's there. And, and by the way, servant girls opening the gate was a good thing because they were greeters. We see it in, in, in John um, 21 when they had come to the gate earlier. They were able to take care of this. So it was their job. So banging on the door. Peter's at the door. Rhoda comes there. It's Peter. Let me in. She freaks out. It's Peter. And she goes running back in to tell everybody. Meanwhile, Peter is like going, Angel, open the gate. Rhoda can't open the door. I got Roman guards that are going to show up anytime now. Let me in. She goes running in. Peter's at the gate. Oh, bless your heart, you're nuts. Let's go back to praying for Peter's deliverance. She says, no, no, it's really him. No, it must be his angel, his guardian angel, because according to Jewish culture at the time, if a guardian angel did show up, it meant that the person died. Let's pray for his deliverance. It must be his guardian angel. He must die. Let's pray. Isn't that weird? She says, no, goes back, opens the door. It brings to us a challenge. When we pray, do we really believe the outcome of our prayer? Or are we just going through the motions? When we really pray for God to deliver, are we really praying for God to deliver? And are we ready to accept the outcome when that outcome is revealed? Perhaps they prayed for James's deliverance and it didn't happen. And he died. And they're praying for Peter's deliverance and it did happen. But because of the experience with James, it clouded their prayer. We need to pray and trust in God for the outcome and God hears our prayers and be ready to accept whatever He reveals to us In that answered prayer. This was an answered prayer. Sometimes God will answer yes to your prayer. Sometimes God will answer no. The one I don't like is when God is silent. Because at least I got a decision. But it's difficult. Our prayers do not mandate God to do anything. Our prayers do not change the mind of God. Our prayers change our mind to align with God. So we are praying, not making God a servant to us, but we are praying as servants of God. And so we need to be very careful on how we approach prayer so that we can accept whatever answer He gives to us. And we need to pray in faith, not as one who is defeated. Jesus would say about those the disciples at the fig tree, Matthew twenty one, twenty one, he says this, and Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, that's a third class contention of potential, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, it'll happen. Jesus is using this, this analogy of prayer, it's powerful. So again, we come to this place where Peter knocks at the gate. They go back. He keeps knocking. Let me in. They finally open the gate. And Peter comes in and reveals to them everything that had happened. Why was Peter saved? To reveal the power of God and that the hand of God is enough to save. Because if they just were left with James, they would live defeated. Defeated. That God is sovereign over all of these things. He silenced them with his hand. Why? Because they were going nuts. Tells them the account. And he says, now, please, pass the account on to James, the oldest brother of Jesus, and the brethren. Why? Because James would end up becoming the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And he'd tell it to the the brethren or to the other Christians who were most probably in another house or some other place praying. And then Peter does what the smart thing is to do. He gets out of town. There is prayer and the power of prayer and trusting in God and the hand of God to protect your life. And then there is wisdom. Let me get where Herod can't get to me. And so he leaves. The next day, though, the soldiers are alerted to what's going on. And you know the searching was going on. What happened? What did you do? What happened to him? The chains fell off. Were you standing there? Yeah, I was standing there. And that whole discussion, then they have to go answer to Herod, who does what? Kills him. Why? Because under Roman law, if a Roman guard lost a prisoner, that guard was mandated to take the sentence of that prisoner. That tells us that Peter was destined for death. They lost the prisoner. We need to be able to trust in God for everything. Because really our life is in His hands. You say, well, what about the bad guy? Oh, God's got a plan. If you notice how it ends. In verses 20 to 25. The hand of Herod was against the church. The hand of God held Peter and protected him. And the hand of God is against the enemies of God. This is powerful. If you notice in the account, it says now... He was very angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is the Phoenician area up in the north, which tells us about his arrogance. He got to a place where he got into an argument with the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon in the north. And he says, I'm not going to give you any more food. I'm cutting you off. Well, imagine a ruler saying, I'm taking away your food. I'm taking away your livelihood. You can no longer have any food. No sustenance. That's ultimate power and arrogance, to think that you could mess with somebody's life that way. So they get a hold of this guy, Blastus, who was the chief chamberlain, close to Herod, and said, hey, listen, we are suffering down here. Will you please negotiate for us? And they did. But Herod waited until this day, this special day, because as we see in verse 21, on the appointed day, what is the appointed day? Most commentators and Josephus, a Jewish historian which wrote about it at this time, said it was the celebration day for Caesar's birthday. He was going to announce this gracious act on Caesar's birthday, but to do it, he would don himself in royal robes. Josephus does a great job of accounting for this. He said that the robes were laced and lined with silver that would glisten with the sun. Now, Herod was up in Caesarea Maritima, and again, if you've been to Israel with us, it's the city that's on the coast. And if you remember looking out, the palace was there in the Hippodrome, which was the round place where they raced the horses. And he was at the Bema seat or the judgment seat that was there. And the sun was glistening. He addressed the people, gave them this big speech of how gracious he was going to be. And the people said, he has got the voice of a God, not of a man. Josephus says he did not do anything to stop them from praising him as a God. And note, it says the angel of the Lord struck him. I love this. I would love to be that angel. God, can I go kick him? Can I go kick him now? says, so the angel of the Lord struck him and he became sick and died of worms. Now, a lot of doctors are trying to figure out what has he got. I'm going to go with what the Bible says because I really like it. It's cool. That he was eaten from the inside out. Josephus declares that he died five days later. Your life is in the hand of God. The enemies of God, their life is also in God's hand. I would rather be in the hand of God to be saved than to be judged because the mighty hand of God is mighty to save. But it's also mighty to judge within that. What was the outcome? We get this summary of 24 and 25. It says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they took John Mark. What happened? God removed the persecutor, and the church began to grow. But what's interesting is this. Don't miss it. How did the church grow? By the word of the Lord. It wasn't a program It wasn't anything other than the Word of God being preached. And people were being saved. It was essential. Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, getting ready for their mission. John Mark is Barnabas' nephew. He takes him with him, and they're getting ready to go on their trip with this lesson. And imagine this lesson as being Paul and Barnabas going on this trip into dangerous territory where their lives are going to be put at at risk. Can I trust in God in what I'm about to do? And the answer is what? Yes. Yes. Because my life is in God's hands. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we are in this place because we've trusted in you. Lord, I know that there may be people here today, that don't have that trust, that aren't in that place where they can be at peace or be at rest. Lord, I would pray that You would give to them a peace that passes all understanding, that would garrison or guard their hearts and minds. How do we know we have that peace? We have that peace because, Lord Jesus, You've given us peace, because You've taken away our sin. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And in communion, it's a reminder of all that God's done for us. It's our sin that separates us from God. And in order to be reunited with God, that sin penalty had to be paid. And Jesus did that on the cross. The night before Jesus died, He took the bread and He took the cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents His blood. That Jesus, in every fashion, experienced sorrow, suffering. And the separation to the point he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew that God hadn't forsaken him. He knew he was there. But he was at that level of intensity. And he did that for you and I. So as we come to this table, we come to this table out of obedience. We receive the bread and the cup because Jesus asked us to. Because he said, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, Remember me. Now, who can have communion? Anybody who's accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's your memorial. It's your act of worship. But if you haven't accepted that forgiveness of sin, this is not going to have any meaning for you. So just let the elements go by as they are passed out. Or if you have sin in your life that you're not willing to get rid of. To ask for forgiveness for Let these elements go by because to take communion with a heart that is loving sin and practicing sin is making a mockery of the cross. That would be an offense to God. In either case, the ushers are going to come forward in a moment and pass out the elements. Hang on to them until everybody's been served. Father, we thank you for this time. May you be honored by this act of worship. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you. stand before the Lord and offer ourselves and our worship. God, we thank you for this bread that you've given to us as a reminder of your body, Lord Jesus. That you received all the punishment for sin. The full weight of the wrath of your Father upon you. Because we couldn't handle it. And in that, you paid The the death penalty, the price for sin, yourself, for us. Once and for all. And on that cross when you said, it is finished. To tell us die. The the debt was paid in full. We thank you for this bread and all that it means. As we receive it, we do so as an act of worship and a memorial saying, thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's all receive the bread. Let's hold the cup up before the Lord. God, we thank you for this cup. As a reminder of a new covenant. That we are in a new relationship. The law has been fulfilled. Grace has been poured out. Our sins are forgiven. We stand before a holy God, blameless and pure, as children of the Most High. The price for that was your blood, Lord Jesus, that was shed for us. And you asked, as often as we would raise this cup and have this communion, that we would do so as a reminder of the relationship in, that we have, that you've been given to us. May we never take for granted that perfect love that was poured out at Calvary. We praise you and we thank you for this cup. As we receive it, we receive it as one body, one faith, and one God, and one Savior. Amen. Let's all receive the cup. Thank you, Lord. As is a practice and custom that we follow, much like the Church of Antioch, out of gratitude for what God has done for us, we take up once a month a special offering. It's a benevolent offering. That goes to meet people's needs. There's envelopes in the chairs in front of you. You can use those. You can give online if you would like. But we do this once a month. And all of these resources goes to help meet people's needs. So the ushers will come forward for that. Let me pray over this offering that it will reach the people that need it. God, I thank you. For the love that was poured out for us at Calvary. And in response to that, we want to pour out love towards one another. That these resources, these monies would meet the needs of people. That Father, that every dollar would find that intended purpose, that divine appointment, whether it's in in helping people with medicine or, or housing or utilities or food or whatever the case is. God, I thank you for your provision in our lives. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Then who could ever stop us?
1: greater than anything, that you are the greatest God in all the earth, and you are the one true God. And so we thank you for what you've taught us this morning. We thank you for allowing us to worship you. So God, we ask that you would take your word and plant it deep on our hearts, and may we be doers of the words, and may people know that we've been with Jesus because we've been here this morning. And everyone said Amen.